listening to the Clear Creek Resources Podcast from Clear Creek Community Church, located in the Bay Area of Houston. Welcome everyone to the Clear Creek Resources Podcast. I'm Rachel. Thanks for joining us today. We're walking through a sermon series called Salty, how to stick out for the right reasons as Christians. This week we heard a sermon about defeating triumphalism, how to suffer well as followers of Christ. And our podcast raises a question you all might be asking. Why, if God is good, do we suffer? So Ryan sat down with Bruce and Yancey, and they discussed not only how do we respond to suffering, but why is there suffering at all in our world? I hope this is a helpful conversation. All right, so guys, today we're going to talk about why does God allow suffering? And since, Bruce, you have preached on suffering uh, most recently, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this conversation today is going to be a little bit different than the, the sermon that we most preach, most recently preached in our, our message series, Salty. Well, today, I mean, th- this is the big question in the world, right? I mean, uh, how come a good God who is all-powerful allows suffering in the world? And what I was talking about was really trying to differentiate this whole idea of triumphal uh, meaning uh, that we see the Christian life is all about glory and we don't include suffering in that picture. So everything's always up and to the right. Everything's always going to be okay. You're always going to get well, which we know is not true, but it creeps its way into our understanding. And when it does, we don't know what to do with suffering. So what I was talking about was really in 2 Corinthians 12, how the apostle Paul was uh, in his defense against the super apostles in Second Corinthians, he was saying, no, 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 uh, suffering is where I've met God. That God has given me grace in my suffering. God has humbled me in my suffering. So what I was talking about was really about how do we embrace suffering in a way that God brings, uh, that we encounter God in meaningful ways in our suffering. So it's very much more personal, much more the, the small understanding of what, what our suffering experience is like. What I understand we're going to talk about is this grand picture that a lot of people are now so confused about that they're even deconstructing their faith and walking away from the faith because they can't understand or appreciate that a good God allows suffering in the world. Yeah. I, I, it seems like there's the presence of suffering or the presence of evil is even uh, an argument against the existence of, of God. So, I mean, we're talking about how can God be powerful? How can he be good? And then there's some people who would point to suffering as a reason why God doesn't even exist, let alone some of those other things. So as you think about if you think about the why God allows suffering, um, it's a big it's a big question. Right? There's <laughs> a lot a of different one. there's a lot of different uh, answers that I don't even think that we can fully comprehend because God is God. Yeah. But as you start to sort of fumble your way through initially answering that question, how do you start thinking through that, Yancey? Why does God allow suffering? Yes, in the world. Well, first of all, I think it's a, it's a great question to ask. I would never belittle someone who asked that question that was an unbeliever or an atheist <clears throat> because. They're just using their mind to think logically about the world they see. Hey, listen, if God's so good, as Bruce noted, and uh, he's so perfect and so omniscient and omnipotent, how come he created a, a universe where we have such brokenness? And so... What, what I try to do is just talk to people about like, okay, let's, let's give the fact that he's omnipotent, that he's omniscient, that he's the grand creator. Why would he create this with, with the brokenness? And I always talk about how brokenness got here. 
And so I mean, we have that recorded in a story, a narrative, an Acts, excuse me, in Genesis chapters one through three, specifically, you know, two and three and three specifically, I should say, where we have this creation and then sin enters into the world and brokenness therein ensues. And so <clears throat> what I tell people is, I mean, what, what you're seeing is the product of what happened, you know, ages ago. Uh, but, but why did God allow that? See, even for Christians, we have that question. Like God knew he was going to create a world that was going to ultimately be broken. There's something about, uh, one, I would say, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but one about like God created a world where he gave us a choice, a real choice about whether we wanted to follow him or not. And so that we're, we're real rational agents. And don't you want that? So, so at one level, I like to talk to people about, don't you like a world where you have rational agency, where you have the ability to make, you don't want to be a robot, do you? Oh, no, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to live in a world where I'm a robot, where I'm forced to do things. And I like, I, I want to live in a world where I can make my own decisions. Okay, well. Uh, you're not a perfect being. You, you, can you make bad decisions? Sure. Well, so God created a world where you could exist. And so just by the necessity of your existence, it looks like that there's the potentiality that things could go awry. Things could go wrong. Like people take advantage of other people. People charge other people exorbitant amounts. Uh, it's called usury. We have people that uh, take the lives of other innocent people. It's called murder. I mean, all these things are by real rational agents with, a, with, a, with real choices. And yet, we wouldn't give any of it up. We wouldn't give any of those things up if we, knowing that we could live in a universe where we get to have our own choices as well. So, uh, part of it is to me is just kind of thinking through all of those things. And then I, not to take it any further, I, I just think there's a long run in here. And I, I think Bruce has talked about this as well, but there's a, there's a wider angle that you can peel back on and look at the universe and say, okay, why would God make a universe uh, where we have the potential to do right or do wrong, knowing that we would do wrong? What's behind that? Why, why, would God, why would God allow that to happen? And I think the answer to that ultimately is, and it's going to sound Sunday schoolish, but the ultimate, ultimate answer is Jesus. That God wants to show us the glory of God to the personal work of Jesus. And in doing that, he does it against the evil of the universe. So I know that's, uh, <laughs> I didn't want it to be the starter and ender in uh, conversation, uh, but that, that's how I approach that because I'm just trying to help people understand like, let's just think through the kind of world you'd want um, uh, and, and at least as God has designed this world up to this po- point, uh, I don't want, I want, I want real choice and, and, and real agency and, uh, and then peel back. Why would God allow that to knowing it was going to break? Why would he still allow you to do that? And again, I think yeah, that's and, where Jesus comes when, in. When Yancey talks about peeling back or, you know, I use the language <clears throat> of zooming out. Probably a better way uh, to say it. The, the thing that people typically do is we zoom in, right? Cause we, because we have compassion for other human beings or because we feel personally pain ourselves, we want to interpret the whole world through our pain or the pain of other people and people matter and we love people. So when we zoom in, we, we immediately run up against what feels like this, um, this contrast that can, can never be reconciled, uh, that God is supposedly loving as a creator mm. and all this evil is going on in the world. And it, it's like you can't get out of that 
mix, right? I mean, Charles Taylor, when he talks about his philosophy of how to see the world, he talks about an imminent frame and a transcendent frame and that people who don't have a relationship with God or even have God in the picture, maybe it's a better way to say that, have an imminent frame. They only see the world in terms of this small picture. That's the only way they can see the world. And I just think you never get to a place of being satisfied about why suffering could exist in the world through an imminent frame because all you get to see really is these contrasting images of a God who's supposed to be loving and a world that is just shot to heck, right? So what do we do? We've got to zoom out to get a more transcendent frame, transcendent, we're including God in this grand picture, right? And so when we see God in the picture, all of a sudden we get really um, a, a clear framework in which suffering can exist. I want to say it's clear because it's not satisfying. <clears throat> it's not satisfying, especially for a non-believer, mm-hmm. because you know it's it doesn't a non-believer doesn't walk into the conversation saying what I'm really about is the glory of God, right? Mm. So uh, I don't mean that to sound condemning in any way. I'm just saying it's a different perspective is all. So when we zoom out, we get a transcendent frame. Now we can see the grand picture. And really, it's just the story of the whole Bible, right? So we get to see this grand picture of creation, fall, redemption. And in understanding that, we, we have an ability to, to see suffering in a world where there is a good, holy, and loving God who's created this world. But, as Yancey said, has given us freedom to make choices, so uh, I think that's where it begins is with the grand picture. Mm-hmm. How would you answer that? Well, I think, I don't know, I don't know how to answer it, but I'd at least the way I, I think it's helpful to think about what are, what are the different narratives or how do people try to interpret things within that imminent frame that you talk about? So, I mean, I think one thing that you hear about, especially as we talk about how the world is broken, the world is sinful, um, and that's an explanation for suffering in the world. And so people kind of say, all right, well, that means that, that suffering is a result of, of somebody's sin, their individual sin. And we saw, we see that in uh, John chapter nine where there's a blind guy and people come up to Jesus and say, who sinned that made yeah. this guy born blind? And Jesus says, you know, it's not that this person sinned or his parents sinned, but it's that, uh, you know, God's purposes, his power might be shown through him. And so uh, there's, there's a purpose that we don't fully understand, but I feel like that's, that's an attempt in our, in our understanding of the world around us to try to interpret what we, what we see, especially when we, we recognize, yeah, there's brokenness and there's suffering. And we want to say that, well, if God is good, that means it must be this person who was, who was bad. And, uh, that's a, that's just yeah one attempt to do it, but it's it still it doesn't satisfy because now we're like well we're all sinful right we right. all are broken so does that mean we're all just destined to to suffer in this life and um, you know you just feel this this fatalism that that you're just stuck to experience suffering yeah I I, I, I hear that I think I think it's interesting when um, people who are at least atheists struggle so you know they they like to throw up the suffering thing like you know there's so much injustice in the world and suffering in the universe or suffering on this planet i should say and chaos in the universe and that just shows you there's not a god and and i'm like well why are you so bent out of shape about it then because i mean you're you're saying that suffering is a bad thing Oh yeah, suffering is a bad thing. Of course, it's a bad thing. Well, what makes it bad? I mean, what's your moral standard that makes it bad? There, there's, and it, it's ironic that you couldn't just say, as some atheists do, because I think they're honest about it, that would just go, oh no, 
it's just how it is. There's nothing good or bad about it. It's just suffering's written in the code of the universe. And because there's not a God here and suffering's not even bad, it's just what it is. But that doesn't ring true for people. I mean, it doesn't really ring true of the human experience. We see uh, famines and wars and atrocities all around the world. And it does something to us. Like we think there's needs to be something that, that, that needs to be made right in that, that needs to be rectified in that. And we already put a moral hue over suffering. Uh, and I would argue even people that are atheistic and surely agnostic, they, they actually do as well because they use that as the answer for that there is no God. But I'm like, well, actually, I think it's ironic because your moral outrage over that kind of suffering shows that there's some kind of standard that you're judging it by that says that maybe there's something outside of yourself telling you that it's wrong. Uh, that's not what you're going to see written in the scriptures uh, alone. You see it written in your own hearts. And so the fact that, that you even ask the question, gosh, does God well, how can God exist when things are so bad here? But I would argue, why do you think they're bad? And this is kind of C.S. Lewis's argument in um, uh, his, his famous work, that uh, Mere Christianity, where he talks about like, you know, <clears throat> uh, the, the fact that you think that there is a right or a wrong or that, that you're upset with something tell you know like you have a standard somehow that's telling you something's right or wrong where do you think that standard comes from it comes from outside of yourself and of course he argues with more like natural law what you would what christians would call like uh the doctrine of natural law which is that god writes that law into all of our hearts because it's the law of of what is right and wrong ultimately and so for me even the question i i've never feared that question not because i have all the answers because i think there's mystery in it so let me just Mm -hmm. let's just put the cards on the table there's mystery in it but just because to say there's mystery doesn't mean that we can't understand things about it. And so for me, it's like just the fact that a guy asked the question, golly, so much suffering in this world. Where is God in it? I'm like, well, I tell you where God is in some of it, that you feel that suffering's a bad thing, right? right. That you, that, that, that it makes you not, you know, wakes you up at night when you, something bad happens. Um, and it is a bad thing. And, and, and that you've made that and it, yeah. And because it is a bad thing, you're right because it is a bad thing. So I, I just think there's just more, forgive the language. There's more meat on the bone when people ask that question that I think a lot of Christians know what to deal with, how to deal with it. So go, let's just, let's just talk about why you think things are bad. Why are bad things bad and good things good? Uh, that, that ought to give you a little insight in that. Maybe there is a divine being that's overall this universe. Now, the bigger question then outside of that is, okay, so why does he allow that stuff? And, um, and I think there's, there's, there's large answers to that. And then there's smaller mysteries to it. I mean, the large answer to me is ultimately in Romans. Yeah. Really in the whole Bible. I mean, oh, that's true. Yeah. I'm sorry. Ro- yeah. Well, and no, you're right. <laughs> sorry. So, I got I Jesus mean, juked in all the right ways right there. It's really the whole mean, Bible. You're right. I Bruce, just it mean, is. Romans eight <laughs> distills the whole story of the Bible yeah. around this question. Right. So, uh, that's why, as as Christians, we have a story that answers this question, right? And it's really the story of the whole Bible. So we begin with we we can start at the end or start at the beginning, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, like we say, most of the grand questions in the Bible uh, are tied to Genesis and the Revelation, right? So the beginning and the very end of the Bible, and this one is too, because we know that according to Revelation chapter twenty one verses four and five, there's going to come a day when there is no more suffering, that there's no more crying and pain, that we are reunited united with God in a, a life together that God intends for us to have with him. And you know, the, the end of that says that he's making all things new. And so we have 
as human beings, this aspirational vision in our hearts that there would be a world without suffering. That's part of the whole story of the Bible. That's where the whole thing's going, right? This is where the story's going. But Yancey, as he said a moment ago, it talked about where it began. And it began with a God who created a world where he gave human beings moral agency to have a relationship with him. And when he, he gave human beings moral agency, that's when sin entered into the picture and so on. You know, as he said in Genesis 3, when sin entered the picture, that's when we see suffering begin to happen. Interestingly, the very next chapter in uh, Genesis 4, we see the first murder, yep. right? The first <clears throat> act of violence. Sin came into the picture, Adam and Eve cast out of the garden, and immediately, what do we see? We see suffering yep. because violence enters a picture with Cain and Abel. And then the very next story in the Bible is about this national disaster, this worldwide disaster, this uh, calamity of a flood, you know. And that flood is tied to the brokenness of human beings in the world. So, sin, brokenness in the beginning of the Bible. And then it leads to this picture of how all things are going to be made new and we're going to be reconciled to God and suffering will be no more. But then Romans 8 connects those two dots and helps us understand uh, why we experience what we experience. It's like Pandora's box was opened with sin and all of this suffering is released into the world. And until that final day comes, we're going to be experiencing that suffering. So what happens in the meantime? Well, that's what Romans 8 is really about. And that's why I think that Bruce has such a helpful way to, to, for us to think about. Is it, is it kind of the near frame or the wide angle? Because in the, in the near frame, that's exactly what we talk about. Hey, listen, um, there, we, the Bible speaks so much about how you endure suffering, uh, what suffering does to you positively, how it grows us in the faith, and so on and so forth. And I understand the philosophical question, but why is suffering even here? I mean, that, that, that is where the Bible talks about, let's go from Genesis to Revelation, let's show the whole scope. And I think it goes obviously beyond that. Um, God does it. This is going to sound like a, a, I joked about Jesus Duke and this may feel like one. I would argue that God does all of this ultimately for his glory. And I don't, Christians would not argue that, but it's something you have to hold on to because like when you, when you don't understand what's going on, you have to ultimately trust the why it's going on. And the ultimate why is that God's doing all things for his glory to make his name great. Not, not us. We're, we're the beneficiaries of it, but I mean, it's really ultimately for God's glory. So when you read passages like Romans nine, where Paul's like, God makes some vessels for uh, uh, noble use and other vessels for destruction. And then they ask him why. And it's like, so that God might get the glory. I, I know people have a hard time somewhat with like, well, why would God allow evil to be here? Uh, and I would say, because ultimately he's going to show how he's glorious through the destruction and putting away of evil through the work and person of Jesus. And, and people are like, well, why would he do that? And I just think, uh, we just got through talking about this with our systematic theology folk for our leadership development program too, folk. But I mean, think about any movie that you've ever watched and think about, think about movies. Like what, what makes the narrative appealing? What shows you the glory of the hero? It's not because nothing happens to the hero. So take like the Avengers movies, right? So we have 400 of them <laughs> and they make all this money. But the largest one was, 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 was Endgame, appropriately called Endgame. Might have called it Revelation. And so how, how do they build it up every, every, with, with each successive movie? They got to find a bigger, badder enemy. 
you, you never see you know, any, just test me on this, any movie that you watch that has the good guy against the bad guy and there's a sequel, the next bad guy is worse than the one before. That's the whole point. So what do they do with, uh, so how do, they, how do they top themselves each year with, you know, the Iron Man, Captain America, all this kind of stuff, and finally get them all together with the Avengers series? Well, they finally get a guy whose name, what's his name? Uh, Spider-Man? Don't know. No, no, no. What's it. the bad guy? <laughs> Does anyone know? No, I don't know. I don't, Thanos. I, I haven't seen, okay. Thanos. Thanos. No, you ever watch these shows? No, no, Thanos, no. Not. There's a reason why I wasn't on the podcast oh my about gosh. Avengers. Right. So it's Thanos, <laughs> But I know right? Greeks. Some Greeks. Thanos. So yeah. which is, okay. Which is the derivative of what term? Death. Death. So they get a guy named Thanos whose name means death and whose power essentially is when he has this gauntlet, he can just kill anyone he wants to by the snap of his fingers. You don't get much more evil than that. That's how you finish the Avengers series because you beat that guy, then you show the glory of how all these Avengers are really awesome. And guess what you do? At the very end of this movie, it's basically a revelation. They meet in this kind of valley and uh, all the people of the armies of light, if you will, they come, they, 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 they reappear and all of our heroes are there and there's big Thanos with his armies of darkness. Death itself, half the universe is gone, uh, the, the living creatures have gone and you know the stakes are high. But the movie's only the movie, why? Because the good guys win in the end. But it shows you the glory of the good guys because... They beat the biggest enemy on the planet. They beat death. They beat death. It shows their glory. I'm just telling you, our movies only work because that's how it's going to happen in reality. Yeah, I, I think that's so interesting. You just baptized the Avengers. That's great. <laughs> yeah. But but I think the, the beauty of that is a lot of people would say, uh, well, you know, that that's just because you know, we are drawn to these stories of, you know, darkness being overcome by, by good. And that's why we hate the whole idea of suffering, that there is this good God. How does a good God then create this, this suffering in the world? To which I would then push back and say, you know, you don't understand. All of those stories come from one great story. Right. The great, and that's the meantime story, right? Creation, fall, and then there's this ultimate sense of restoration. The great story is the story of redemption. It's the story of how the goodness of God overcomes the suffering, the darkness. Ultimately, our greatest enemy is death. Yeah. And through the resurrection of Jesus, we see you know, death is overcome. And so uh, this is the great story where we find hope and even understanding of the, um, the way that suffering is allowed in the world. Yeah, I mean, how, how do you continue to try to answer that? Why suffering's allowed and what's the purpose of it all? And um, I mean, how do you do that as a campus pastor? How do you do that pastorally for people? Yeah, I mean, obviously this is a challenge. But I, so in Romans 8, you know, Bruce talked about... Um, you know, it's in in the context of Paul's writing to people who are in going through suffering, yeah. and then you have Romans eight twenty eight, which is um, this passage that is comforting for some, but also might feel just like this trite answer for others. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that God does; He's working all things for the good of those who love Him. Um, and so it gets down to the you know, how do we define what it, what is the good of those who love Him? So, I mean, um, you know, Yancey, you mentioned that. Ultimately, all these things are, are working towards God's glory. You know, we can also say that, according to Romans eight twenty eight, He's also working all things for our good, so His glory and our good. Um, and He gets to define what our good is. You know, we 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 might think our our good is a comfortable, suffering free, <clears throat> hardship free life, um, but ultimately, God He He defines what is good for us. And um, you know, like we said, people are. 
suffering, whether it's in your own life or someone else that you know and you love well, it it is it, it rocks your faith. It causes you to question your faith, whatever mm-hmm. that faith might be. Even if you're an atheist, it causes you to think about, uh, man, I, I had this worldview, this belief system that was built upon this, and now that's all getting shaken because I thought it was this easy answer to everything that I do this, and then this happens to me, you know. Um, and and I just think that that's just another one where people say, all right, it's I have a definition of what good looks like, but then when suffering shakes all that, then I'm like, now I don't know what good is. And we have to keep going back to how God defines what is good for us. And ultimately it's pointing us to Jesus and this ultimate uh, ultimate healing that we do experience uh, in in the final you know consummation of all, all eternity in, in, the, in the gospel of Jesus. I mean, you're really going to have a hard time all the more if the Christianity, quote unquote, that you cut your teeth on was this kind of syrupy, milk toast kind of faith that simply made was just a, a baptized version of the great American dream. Like if, if, if the, the Jesus you got sold was, hey, you, 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 you follow Jesus, your life's going to be rosy, everything's going to come up, aces for you, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, Triumphal. and that's, that's the promise for you. I mean, I, those fill up churches and they sell a lot of books. Make make pastors a lot of money, but um, I mean they just they just gut people in the end because uh, life doesn't really go that way, and that's not even the Christianity that's portrayed in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a cursory reading of the New Testament, we're talking about people that suffer. First Peter's a book on suffering. Revelation's a book on suffering. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, which, by the way, an instrument of suffering. And, and that's not to say that there aren't uh, wonderful things in the gospel. There are. It's what makes it good news. But um, we, Martin Luther said there were kind of two ways you can follow God. You can do a theology of glory or a theology of the cross. And the theology of the glory is what's good and shiny and fancy and fun, but really isn't the true faith. But the theology of the cross means that you know what real glory is because you walk the way of Jesus to get there. This is what we talked about with, frankly, with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Right. I mean, it's, it's the path of suffering. And, and we're not martyrs. We're not trying to get a complex. We're just simply saying, listen, man, it, it looks like if you want to follow Jesus, which he says in Matthew 5, that you're going to get persecuted as well. They're going to, they're going to do to the prophet, do to you what they did to the prophets, what they're going to do to me. And that's uh, why Paul later on says, I bear on me the marks of Jesus because this is the way of Christ to follow Jesus. It says also in the text, first Peter, I think all who desire to live a godly life shall be persecuted. Maybe first Timothy, but yeah. you'll have to scripture check me on that one. But <laughs> that's the part of it. That's the way to walk. But, but it is one of those things where if we don't have this strong theology of suffering, because yeah. I mean, we, you know, we hear this and, and when I preach on suffering, it just kind of feels a little bit like a downer in the room because we're just we're focusing our attention sure. on the dark side of our life, right? right? And yet, <clears throat> without a good, strong theology of suffering, we can't have a theology of the cross. Yeah. We can't really lean into the Christian experience. What are, we, what are we expressing hope about anyway if we don't have a great understanding of suffering? Not only that sin exists, but that it destroys, it separates, it uh, eventually damns. And so... The, the theology of the cross is that Jesus comes into the midst of that and takes on suffering on our behalf so that ultimately, and that's the key word, ultimately then we are delivered from this world of suffering mm. because he is making a, a new world altogether. Mm. So I'm going to change thoughts for just one second because I'm going to go back to Romans 8, 28. It's interesting that, you know, I've got my Bible here. It says, uh, and we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is one of those you and y'all texts, yeah. because (laughs) we want to make this a personalized text when that chapter or that verse is really given to us in the zoom out section of this scripture, right? Where he's zooming out to say, because God, God created us to know him because sin entered the world. We experience futility. Okay. So all this futility in the world, this seeming, um, use uselessness of all things that are happening, everything, you know, you, you spend your whole life trying to make your life out of something. Somebody gets cancer when they're 40 years old and they die or whatever. There's just some futility in the world and a bondage to decay. He describes, you know, the sense that our, even our bodies. Okay. So at my age, I'm like, Man, this bondage, bondage to decay thing really is working. Even at yours, Ryan, you're wearing glasses now. Why are you wearing yeah, glasses? I guess, yeah, some cheaters. Yeah, yeah, I had an MRI on my hip done the other day yeah. because like, my hip's been bothering me. Yeah, I and feel so like all of these apart, things are but. just a sniff of the grand picture of what suffering really looks like and why we are suffering because sin into the world and there's this futility and bondage to, bondage to decay and in the grand picture of things, then what we see is that God is, his redemption is an adoption, right? Through the work of Jesus. He's adopting us back into his family. So it's a a reconciling of the relationship that we have with him, which oftentimes we don't even think about that as a part of the suffering, that we've been separated from the way that God intended for our relationship to be. But again, Christian, you know, transcendent worldview we'd say that's absolutely the heart of what it all is you know that we've been separated from god but he's going to adopt us back into his family and as his children as a community of his children he says these things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose now that that means it's true for us individually but it's in the context the grand picture of this is it's true for his people who come to faith in him. And so then the Holy Spirit comes to abide in us so that we get this experience of having God with us, even in the midst of the futility and this bondage to decay uh, and the promise of what is to come, that he is going to deliver us from this suffering. One passage I always think about is how uh, is John eleven with the rising the, where Jesus raises uh, Nazareth, not Nazareth, is it Lazarus from yeah. the dead. Yeah, I was just thinking about how like yeah, so he raises him from the dead, and um, but but he goes on to die again. Like Lazarus doesn't just live forever, right? But and so what what's the point of of Jesus raising him from the dead? And he talks about how he has this interaction um, where he says, you know, I I am the the resurrection, you know, so. Um, that, he, that Lazarus is going to die again, but yet there is a, a greater resurrection arising um, through faith in him that he's ultimately pointing to. And so, um, I don't know, I always just think about these moments where you, you, you go through that and we want God to, to take it away in, a, in yeah. an immediate, you know, our, the imminent frame, like in, in our experience now, but in Jesus, you know, he might do that. He might, he might bring some sort of healing, but there's an ultimate healing that he's really pointing to because in the end, um, or in the end of our life, that, that we will succumb to death, mm-hmm. but yet he has resurrection that he promises to those who, who trust in him. So, Isn't it interesting in that passage, though, uh, I think you see Jesus both do the close-up frame uh, and the imminent frame and the transcendent frame. I'm using these terms a little differently because everything's transcendent. Which he always knows God's, mm-hmm. it's a God-bathed world. And, and of course, he's God in the flesh. But when you look at that text, 
So if you just, just walk through that narrative a little bit. Jesus uh, gets word that his friend is sick, Lazarus is sick, and he, he waits even longer because he's got, he's, he's wide angle. He knows really what he's going to do. And, and yet finds out later that Lazarus dies and it says that he weeps. Mm. So now he's closed. Now, now he's, he finds, he sees suffering and he weeps about it. You know, and I, I don't want to just, you know, I, th- I think a lot of pastors like, you know, he's really just crying because death has entered the picture. Uh, I would argue he's crying because he lost his friend. Mm. His friend died. Jesus is a human being. He lost his and friend. His friends are suffering. And his friends are suffering. And, and his, uh, Lazarus's uh, family, you know, uh, Mary and Martha, they let him hear about it. Like Jesus, why didn't you show up, man? You dawdled around. We, we, you could have done something about this. And all of that's true. I mean, he didn't dawdle around, but I mean, he waited. And I just think it's, you see both. You see him mourn the loss of Lazarus, knowing that suffering's real, knowing that he's going to raise the guy later on. He's going to raise him and he's still weeping about it. And so here we have, it just shows us who God is mm-hmm. to me. God, uh, the, the wider angle is that he's going to raise him from the dead. He's going to use Lazarus as an illustration that he is the true, that Jesus is the true one who can raise people, that he's the true life, uh, the resurrection and the life. I mean, it's, he's using almost Lazarus as a teaching point. And yet at the same time, which is a bigger, I mean, that, that's why it makes the text of scripture, not just because he had a friend, he, he raised other people from the dead and we don't have their names on it, but it's because he's making a point. And uh, I, it's fascinating to me because what it shows you is the both and, not the either mm-hmm. or, that there is suffering that, that even Jesus is sorry to see, but he, in knowing that he's going to ultimately take it away, doesn't make it less sorrowful. Like he's going to wipe it all away. Revelation, the true yeah. end game. And yet it's still sad to see now. And Jesus weeps about it, knowing that he's going to raise that guy 24 hours later. Uh, Um, Which really kind of shows that God cares about how we care for people who suffer. Absolutely. You know, that he's he's demonstrated that for us. And obviously, you know, as pastors, that's something we're keenly aware of is what it means to care for people who who suffer because much of our um, church life is Mm -hmm. is about that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it'd be helpful for us to even give some pointers or some experience that we've had of how to uh, how to care for people, how to walk with people, what to say, what not to say. One one thing that's interesting though is I feel like, you know, with all what we've talked about with this theology of suffering and and try to p- give it a uh, an eternal perspective. Sometimes it, in those moments, or I say often in those moments where someone is going through suffering, that's that's usually not what they need to hear in that moment um, is to be reminded that like, oh, there's this, you know, the, the God has a purpose for all this. And, like, and, you know, it ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And although, the, you know, you're going through this suffering or, um, you know, you're grieving the, the loss of someone that like there is a resurrection. Usually that is not the most comforting thing in that in that moment. Um, they might might find that comforting as time goes on, but um, I find it's really helpful just to just to be present with someone mm-hmm. and just to love them and comfort them, um, to weep with them, um, to not try to correct some of that theology that they're you know that, that might start to bubble out of them because they're they're trying to make sense of it themselves, yeah. and yeah. Um, but just trying to to love them well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
you don't show up as the fixer. Don't show up as the teacher. You know, you, mm-hmm. t- who's going to correct the, the bad theology? There's a time for that, but it's not in the midst of grief or suffering. You know, what we would hope is that time is now. That time is before that suffering ever comes, so that we have uh, a solid view of suffering and in the glory of God and the goodness of God in the midst of suffering before you ever get to that picture. But sometimes people don't have that. And when they don't have that, what they need to see is more the incarnation of Jesus. They need, you know, a sacramental presence is the language we use. You know, this represent um, a person who will represent the presence of God by just being with them, giving value to them, um, helping them engage with their grief and their suffering uh, because you're there and you grieve with them because you know they matter and what they experience really matters. Yeah, One of the ways I, I try to help people think through this is I, I tell uh, people that they're, think of truth in two categories. There's now truth and later truth. Hmm. And it's all truth, but, but truth can serve you in different ways. So if you, if, you, if you give someone a later truth in the present, it might actually hurt them. You know, someone loses a child, God forbid. And you're like, well, you know, they're in, they're in heaven. That doesn't really help people. You know, oh, God will fix it all in the end. You'll see him one day. Yeah. If they're too close to the blast zone of that tragedy, they just won't hear that uh, because that's, that's, you've actually given a later truth in the present. So I just tell people there's now truths and there's later truths. So, you know, a now truth when someone's had a tragedy, when someone's suffering is, is you know, uh, it's where the scriptures tell us that there's a, you know, there's a time for tears and a time for laughter and there's a time to mourn. And, uh, and when we can mourn with people, that, that's the truth they need in that moment when they're hurting. Uh, and, and that doesn't mean that you never get to the later truth. You just get to the later truth. Watch this later. Mm-hmm. Right. And usually what later truths are, are truths that you probably should have heard before the now. So, you know, we, we have hurricanes coming through here. We just had Nicholas come through here and some people, believe it or not, on the coast, uh, lost their homes because some of them, because they were just poorly built. They just didn't have the kind of rebar they needed. And I think that's kind of what good theology and biblical teaching does is you, you want to get good, solid theology and uh, doctrines of suffering and the goodness of Jesus and the cross well before tragedy hits your life so that when the hurricanes of tragedy come, you'll have the rebar to make it through it better, not perfectly, but better so that you can, you'll remember those truths that like, you know, God is good and he is sovereign and they won't be platitudes to you. that don't help because you'll already have a bin. Then all you'll have to do is just have people love on you. Uh, you'll have like Jesus, someone just to come weep with you. So I just know for me, it's been helpful to talk about, all right, here's a situation. Someone's in suffering. Do what, what's the now truth they need instead of the later truth. That's probably not going to help now. Only later is later. I need now truth. And usually for suffering, it's, it's presence. It's an arm around them. It's not saying much. Oftentimes, right. sometimes it's just like fixing them dinner and they didn't ask for it, but you came over and did it anyhow. And you're not asking them how it's going because it's obvious how it's going. And you just tell them you love them um, or I'm sorry. And, uh, and I'm here for you. Those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I we've, we, some of us have had more tragedy than others and more suffering than others. And we've had hard years. I can just tell you in my life, those are the things I can still remember with crystal clarity of just people telling me those things. And it wasn't the Bible verses they told me because I knew them, but I just needed sacramental presence. So Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Those are powerful things to me. So new, new, uh, now truth and later truth is one of the ways I do that. Yep, absolutely. And I think it's helpful when you have community, you have people around you to be that presence, but then be those ones who, who can help you walk through some of those later truths. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where we process some of those absolutely. things. It's still all in community. Yeah. For, for years. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, I mean, when we experience uh, supreme suffering, like the death of a loved one, uh, that kind of grief experience takes years. Yeah as we continue to lean into the very truths that we're talking about today and reinforce those things again in our own heart as well as the heart of our friend. You know, um, one of the things that one of the guys in our church who lost his wife taught me is uh, he said, it was so helpful for me when people were with me and they would they would talk about my wife mm-hmm. and they would use her name. Yeah. And he said, I wanted to get a shirt that just said, Say and said you know wife's name you know, yeah. say her name yeah. uh, because it was it was remembering her life it was yeah. grieving her well but you know we're talking about what to say what not to say uh, the reason I, I tell you that is because I think for some people we we avoid talking about the person who's lost because it's like we're bringing up that grief all over again and that grief is so profound that it is not an idea of bringing up the grief again. It's the idea of acknowledging yes. that pain is there and you enter into that with them as you celebrate that person's life and remember them well. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I, what comes to mind is uh, Bruce and I both read a book recently uh, by uh, Ross, is it Duthit? Yeah, Duthat. Duthat. He's a New York Times columnist. He's a best-selling author. And he wrote about... I mean, it's not even been published. We, he was just gracious enough to send Bruce a copy. Uh, it's just a really cool thing. But he struggled with Lyme disease, really undiagnosed and then later diagnosed. But basically, the whole thing is about just his journey through chronic illness. And I, I think Bruce probably mentioned this in his message um, that just was last night, so I wasn't able to hear it. But when I read it, one of the things that stood out to me was he just there's just this little scene of, and he's been struggling this for years now, and it's debilitating. And he he talks about living with a life of mix of fury and anger and sadness and depression. And and this guy is a devout, uh, he's a devout follower of Jesus as much as I can tell, and he speaks openly about faith. But he, he just talks about having a friend of his, I think from college, mm-hmm. that just spends some time with him. And so this guy, you know, uh, has been, and I'll try, I'm sorry, i make this short, but he, he's been so wrapped up in chronic fatigue, this kind of chronic fatigue that follows with Lyme disease, that he can't do anything. Uh, he, he doesn't want to go out of his house. And so his friend shows up and takes his wife and his kids. This is Ross's kids and Ross's wife, and they go out just, just around the house and just hang out. Ross doesn't want to spend time with him because he's, he's so incapacitated, not just physically, but emotionally. And, but the guy just hangs out with him, just spends times, uh, times with him. And when he's gone, here's what Ross, I'll try to summarize, but he's like, I kind of resented when he first got there. Cause I'm like, I can't do, why would you come fly all this way or drive all this way to spend time with me and my family? And you don't, you don't even see me cause I don't, I don't want to see anybody. But when you do spend time with me, you just sit there and just talk with me. He says, but after time passed, I realized what a gift it was. And he said, what it did for me is it, and he uses this term. He says it, being with someone 
just to be with me and just to talk with me, lanced some of the poison out of me that I'd been building up because of this frustration and despair and anger because I just had a friend that would be there. And so I, I, would, I would think of it this way, like you're, you're building up all this, this pressure and you want to release it in healthy ways. Having a friend who loves you like Jesus would love you just to listen to you, just to be next to you relieve some of that pressure it seems like so it just i mean it's just a gift not only to read that but i've i've seen that in my life and and we talk about like uh, how to bless people in suffering i mean this is a great opportunity for the church to be the church by just Mm -hmm. being present not bible verses and not little you know simple platitudes but just by loving people and i think our church does that very well I mean, I want to, I don't, I want people to, we've done that very, very well. And we're reminded of sadness all the time. We just lost someone yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, we had a lady that we used, we used her story about working through cancer. She died yesterday. And I'm hoping the people of Clear Creek Community Church that are around her and, or at least around her family, love them well. And I think we've done that, but those are the things to learn. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you, you know, from my own struggles with chronic illness in the early days of all of that, um, when friends would come over and they would listen to me, because one of the things that, uh, Ross that talks about this too, uh, which was very helpful for me because it affirmed something in me. Um, it's one thing to have illness or to suffer an acute issue because people know how to respond. We know yeah. generally you, you show up, you help the way you can, and then this is going to be over. You know, somebody has a cold, you bring them chicken soup, whatever it is. But if it's a chronic thing, it's like um, we we don't know how do you continue to stay engaged with someone who is suffering something chronic. And uh, so when my friends would show up and listen to me and uh, and a lot of a lot of what they're listening to is me whining, you know, about or, or complaining about my condition, and uh, and yet it it said I matter, what I'm going through matters. It allowed me to grieve, but it also gave me hope because good grief, you, you think about your your greatest moments in life, they they don't matter much if it's not for the people around you mm-hmm. to share it with you, and so it it works both ways. Uh, not only your greatest moments, but your darkest moments. You know, we, we say about people who are getting married, you know, when you share joys, they seem to double. And when you share sorrows, they seem to half. And uh, it's true. You know, it's true when you're uh, suffering that your, your sorrow is mitigated with caring presence. There's something that's said in that book, Bruce. I want to. I'd love to run it by you, and I know we've both read it. Ross talks about, and I think this is. I think it's helpful that you mention this because people who suffer, especially those who are chronic sufferers, it's a whole different world. What what I read was it's one of the reasons it's helpful for someone to sit alongside and just listen to the person tell where they are and where their struggles are, where their story is with their chronic symptoms is because that's the only story they read every day because they can't get out of it because it's Mm -hmm. chronic, right? So it's ever present in their mind. Sometimes it can dominate their mind, almost be oppressive at times. And um, that there's that, that people that, that suffer chronically are always rehashing that story because it's what they're living. And for them to have someone to speak that story to, even if they hear that person's hearing it again, there's something cathartic or at least, you know, is that true? Oh, absolutely. 
and I, I don't even know how to explain all the emotions of that or why that works in my emotional world that way. But uh, you think about, um, I think it would be somewhat like someone who has a secret, and mm. maybe not just a secret sin, but maybe something that they really don't want people to know about. Maybe it was uh, they they were sinned against, yeah. and it's a secret, and then that they make that known to someone and when they do that person responds with grace and love to them and all of a sudden this this story is brought into the light and in the light it uh it right sizes right it it doesn't get to loom so large that it dominates any longer because someone else knows it someone else can speak into it and again i'm i'm not trying to play psychologist there i i just think though that there is this powerful dynamic of suffering in community that right-sizes the suffering. It just makes more sense when I read in the scripture, mourn with those who mourn. Not just that there's a time for mourning, but that you mourn with them and you weep with those who weep. There's something about entering into the suffering of someone else. Well, I mean, I, I can... One of the reasons I, I think this is true is this is exactly what the gospel is. Mm. Jesus comes and enters into our suffering by fully taking upon that suffering upon himself. He's known in Isaiah as the suffering servant. He's the one who bears upon him the suffering, if you will, the penalty of our sins, taking it upon the cross and becomes the ultimate sufferer. So that one day, you know, end game. Mm. So that one day we don't suffer. But until then, we should be part people, not who are marked by suffering, although we will be marked by suffering because of the world we live in, but people who know how to engage in suffering. We're not the people who are like, we're, we're okay with people who aren't okay. Mm. And, and our faith is a faith that has room for suffering. Like we're, it's okay not to be okay. And it's okay to say that. That's why I think small group is so important. You got to be around a group of people that know you and love you. And uh, that, that are just going to, Bruce used to say this all the time. And not that he doesn't say it, but I just, when we were trying to embed the DNA, of what small groups would be like, Bruce would have this phrase. And I know that you know it, where we talk about, you just got to have some 2 a.m. friends. And what he was simply trying to say, I think just really eloquently was like when it all hits the fan and you don't know where else to turn and you're just, your life's falling apart. Who are you going to call it to in the morning? That's going to pick up the phone and not berate you for calling them. Mm -hmm. And, um, man, if you want to decide that before that suffering hits. Yeah. Right. So, so that you will pick up the phone, get the rebar in now. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So that's the, that's why it's hopeful, at least for followers of Jesus that, uh, yeah, suffering's probably on your horizon. Job says man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. I think that was one of his friends that said that It was one of the true things that he said. Mm -hmm. So, Hey, let's, let's, let's just get geared up and live in this world in a way because there's a way that we can be very winsome and how, I mean, this is the whole point of Bruce's message that we can be really salty really winsome about like, man, those, those Christians, they, they suffer like the rest of us, but they suffer and they suffer well. Um, that's, that's at least that's the prayer we want to have, mm-hmm. you know, to do that well. So yeah. well, good word. Good word. Well, thank you guys for being here and venturing to answer the question. Why does God allow suffering? It's obviously a, a complicated question with a lot of complicated answers, but thanks for being here. No, mm-hmm. thanks. Glad to be here. Thank you guys so much for listening today. I hope this conversation was helpful. If you want to watch the video of this podcast or share it with a friend, you can find it at clearcreekresources.org, where you can also find articles, music, and a lot more. Again, I'm Rachel. Thanks so much for joining us today.